Hello, and welcome to Resting Batch Face, the only Top Chef reality recap podcast where the hosts would respond to the Fruit Loop Challenge by just pouring a bowl of fucking cereal. I am Dan Paul, joined as always by my good friend and co-podcaster Gwen Kirby. Gwen, how are you doing today? Daniel, I'm doing excellently. The sun is shining. The world is turning. You're being you by immediately scooting your chair in as loudly as possible in the middle of your intro. I'm I'm ready. I'm ready to talk Top Chef. I take it you don't want me to start over. You'd rather just shame me for the now rather. 25 people who listen. I would much rather just shame you. That's accurate. Well, we all get what we want. And this is this is, I would say, an episode that for better or worse, very much gives the viewer what they want in that we get the highs and the lows of the Top Chef experience, which is to say we see great chefs making incredible dishes that they would never have thought to make if they hadn't been forced to arbitrarily. And we see great chefs deal with the difficulty of cooking outside, which evidently includes the problems of trying to make pasta in the wind, which I have to say is not something that occurred to me. While getting stung by bees. While getting stung by bees. Well, we'll get into all of that when we get to the elimination challenge. But I do just want to tell the listeners, if I do seem abnormally somber, it's because Kiki, who we lose in this episode, is indeed one of the founding members of my Top Chef fantasy team, which I believe the name is Gremolata Love, <laughs> I think is what I'm going with this season, trying to switch it up a little bit. And she, she flew... I'm going to say she flew not close enough to the sun. If she'd clung a little closer to the sun, maybe she would have properly cooked her chicken. But we'll, we'll we'll get into all that. So as always, we start with our little opening as everybody tries to deal with what happened the night before and all that kind of stuff. And Kiki, it's always tough when you see somebody being spotlighted up front. Mm-hmm. She, she's worried how she's doing. She says she's approaching it wrong. She's in her head. And she says she likes to plan. She, quote, R&Ds a shit ton. And then she speaks to herself, I think, unintentionally in rhyme, girl, whatever, I'm trying to get it together. And aren't, aren't we all? I just wanted to start with a different thing, though, which is so Gabe is like, gets to talk to his family briefly. Mm -hmm. And it was occurring to me that this is one of the secretly just violent things about this show is like, why on earth shouldn't they be allowed to talk to their family every fucking day? Like, my understanding is, like, maybe once a week, they'll be like, this is your time to have a brief video chat with your family while we videotape it. Like, like, what is the downside? Like, are they worried that, like, Gabe's wife is going to tell him how to make a sauce, like, that he doesn't know? Like, what's going on? I think it's just they want them to be forced to interact with each other. I mean, that's the drama of the show is is, like, you know, if you're... If you're spiraling and you're feeling like shit and you can call your spouse and they can talk you down, then you're a lot less interesting on camera the next day than if you just feel like shit. I mean, that's sadistic, but yeah. I think that that's a part of it. I guess that's also the thing we always have to remember when we talk about the twists of these shows. Like the twist is not just that you're going to have to elevate a food memory whilst using Campbell's soup. The real twist is you're going to have to do all of that while undergoing like KGB style interrogation tactics of being like held in isolation and weird moments where you're actually able to talk to people you love. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that's one of the foundations of reality television is torturing the contestants for heightened drama. In another life, Colicchio would make just the best prison warden. 
Like, I just think Colicchio would absolutely excel at those moments where he kind of like smugly walks the tear and he's like, well, I guess maybe you should have made better decisions and then you wouldn't be here, but you are. So where's my fucking toilet wine? (laughs) I mean, Colicchio has a great smug face. And yeah, I mean, we'll get into raw chicken, but I mean, the look on his face, uh, it's just, I wouldn't fuck with it. You know, I have this later on, but I just want to start with this. There's two things I want to talk about with Colicchio. One, what the fuck was up with that hat he was wearing? Which was like not only just like a straw hat, but it was like floppy in a way that is meant to evoke, I think, like just like depression era poverty, but like a little bit of whimsy and maybe like hope that the Dust Bowl will soon recede. The other thing is just like this is a standard moment in the elimination challenge is in the same way that Padma during the quick fire judging is like, did you mean to totally fuck up your vinaigrette? Colicchio will walk around and talk to them in the midst of cooking and offer no positive reinforcement of any kind and basically and not even really like point out if they're making a mistake, just regardless of whether or not he likes what they're doing. He just stands there like a smug asshole, just like trying to instill doubt. And I guess here's my question. Like, A, is he the worst mentor in history? And B, if he's not even a mentor, like, is there any analog to Colicchio in a game show? Like somebody who's just there to like, just try to fuck with you? I mean, to your first point, yeah, his hat looks like if Bertie Wooster was like down on his luck, like 20 years after we saw him, that's yeah. It says a sad droopy tragic air about it. Uh, two. Yeah. Tim Gunn. He is not, he reminds me actually a lot of Paul Hollywood on great British bake off, which you don't watch, but he will, he'll be watching them and, and you know, he'll be like, so did you, did you intend to put milk on the top of that bun before it went in the oven? And they're like, Yes. And he just stares at them. However, on Bake Off, he's always accompanied by his co-host, whose role is to kind of be like, oh, stop it, you. Um, but obviously Padma is not, Padma's not going to do that. No. Anyway, we, we can get into this as we, we get into this specific episode. But it was just occurring to me watching this time that just like Colicchio offers nothing to these people no. other than just like a smug dismissal of whatever they're doing regardless of whether or not what they're doing is good. Yeah, he's just there to fuck with them. And really the best that can be said is that if you're a contestant who hopefully has watched the show, you know that whatever he is saying actually doesn't have anything to do with like whether or not it's a good idea. Most of the time. Sometimes like with Kiki, he was legit like, so you're going to make all this chicken, you know you only have like one tiny ass fryer, right? Which like, was good. I mean, advice is a strong, very strong word. Um, but it was, shall we call it accurate shade? Yeah, I guess, which again would be a little bit more useful if he didn't just use that tone of voice, no matter who he was talking to about what, I mean, it's important for exposition for the show. Like that's the moment where we, the viewer get to get some advanced sense of what is going to be cooked. I guess it's like that thing they say, you know, in, in writing, like try to make sure that you're doing more than one thing at a time. Like don't have your dialogue just be expository. And Colicchio's dialogue is not merely expository because it's also like deeply violent. So at (laughs) least he's, at least he's doing two things at once. (laughs) Oh man. If I could just teach my undergrads to do the same. I think that's actually like an interesting idea. Like 
Anytime you're writing expository dialogue, make sure that one, at least one of the characters is a complete asshole. And that way, at least it will also be characterizing and add a little bit of tension and juice. <laughs> Something to think about. Well, um, from one person who fucks with people to the quick fire, another way to fuck with people, we get the... The Campbell Soup Quickfire, sponsored aggressively by Campbell Soup. Uh, and they're supposed to evoke a food memory using Campbell's Soup. Dan, did you grow up uh, consuming Campbell's Soup? I did. I will also note that they're also required to elevate it. So it's one I, of these, I'm sorry, yes. It's one of these special Quickfires that has like four different things going on, one of which is product placement. Yeah, I mean, I did to the extent that, and this is where... The good news is my mother is not listening to this podcast. If on the off chance, A, my mother has learned what a podcast is, B, <laughs> has learned that I make one, and C, is feeling so nostalgic having not seen me in a long time on account of the pandemic that she actually turns this on and is listening, you did the best that you could with the British knowledge that you were you were raised with. But Mama Pierce was all about just like, what if we just throw some Campbell's cream of mushroom on in the <laughs> Like, that was a go-to. Cream of mushroom soup was the base of the pot pie. Chicken and mushroom soup was a standard to make, like, and always condensed. That's why, to me, like, one of the things that's interesting about Campbell's is the way in which those condensed soups can make their non-condensed offerings seem like they're just this incredibly decadent offering. <laughs> like, it's like, oh, my gosh. Like, the Campbell's Chunky it's like you don't even have to like add a half a can of milk and a half a can of water and stir it until it doesn't just look like sludge. Ew. Like, where are we, Paris? <laughs> yeah, we were not a Campbell's soup family. I don't know why. We certainly have the Midwestern roots for it. But if we ever had Campbell's, it was just to have like maybe some chicken noodle soup. And that was usually just if you were sick. Yeah, yeah. That the age old the age old remedy. I do want to say though, I I do like this challenge. I wish it wasn't product placed, and I wish that it was like you have three days to make a soup that has just like incredibly built flavor, as opposed to like you have half an hour to describe to disguise the blandness inherent to this Campbell's condensed. That's because you love soup. I love soup immensely. Um, I'm sure others have written and can speak much more eloquently about like you know, soup as a kind of metaphor, like slow cooking and history and just the ways in which different flavors blend together. Um, I will say the one thing that I'm kind of like most nostalgic about that my mother does cook is a lentil soup that she gets like a smoked turkey leg in there. And when I think of like cold days growing up, that is the soup that I think of as, as warming me up in particular, just like a very specific kind of recollection of coming home. Well, coming home from a debate tournament Sunday afternoon and it's like I've been away all weekend and immensely exhausted because those things start way too early in the fucking morning and you're sleeping on some stranger's couch and you're screaming anyway and just like coming home and there's like a warm pot of soup and it's it's rich and it's smoky and it's salty and it's one of the few things that um my mother makes well that then I have also learned to make passably and definitely makes me wish that there was a much longer, richer lineage of soup in my family that I could pass on. But if I could, if I could start one restaurant that wasn't my breakfast tapas restaurant, top of the morning, <laughs> top of the morning to you, um, it would, it would be like a soup stand, be like a food cart, food truck soup, 
shop. I, I just don't think Soup gets enough front and center billing, and I think I think it deserves it. I was gonna say I'm so glad we can give Soup its moment in the sun. I, I didn't really grow up eating soup. I think because I grew up in Southern California, there was never really like a oh it's so cold. Let's have some comforting soup. However, I did go, you may not know this, Dan, to Carleton College, uh, <laughs> where, <laughs> where it really gets very fucking cold. And they had this chicken tortilla soup in the dining hall that was so good. It was spicy. And I can tell you not a lot at the Carleton College dining hall was spicy and just warm and full of these big chunks of chicken. And there was like a little buffet of things you could put in the chicken, little little crushed up tortilla chips and sour cream dollop and like little white cheddar thingies. And it was really delicious. And I got very excited when I saw that on the dining hall menu. I mean, it's very cold in, was it Calgary or is it Edmonton? I can't remember where where Carlton is. Um, but- ha ha ha, to Northfield, Minnesota, loyal listeners. Oh, I'm getting confused with the other more famous kid, Carleton College in Canada. Oh. <laughs> anyway, anyway, no, look, I mean, I'm very pro soup. I will say this challenge, again, sensibly is not really a soup challenge. I don't think 30 minutes is enough to develop the kind of flavors. Um, and it's your pretty standard, like, take something that's immensely branded and do something with it. I will say there were some interesting, there were some interesting utilizations of it, some of which were just like a, a chef version of my mom, just using cream of mushroom soup as, as gravy. Others were much more complicated. Um, I'm curious, as always, with, with the quick fires, Gwen, what's the what's the thing you most wanted to eat? And what's the thing you were like, hmm, that gave me something to think about in terms of cooking? I the, Maybe there's something to think about in terms of cooking. I was pretty interested in Byron's cream of mushroom bread pudding. I've made sweet bread puddings a number of times, and they're really good. But I really haven't done any savory bread puddings. And that was the kind of thing where I thought, like, I probably wouldn't use Campbell's cream of mushroom, but a savory bread pudding could be a really fun addition to to a Thanksgiving meal. In terms of what I would most want to eat, I, the Vietnamese shrimp tomato soup sounded really good. Maybe because with the pandemic, I'm just eating my own cooking way too much, but just like the spices and acidity and the shrimp and it just, I don't know, it sounded delicious. What about you, Dan? That was towards the top of my list. Also, Gabe's cod with the cabbage and spicy sofrito, though I'm not exactly sure how the soup got in there. Maybe that's why it looks so good. It just looked like <laughs> it just looked like a really well cooked piece of fish. I will say yeah. Jamie's Vietnamese shrimp with a little bit of the tomato soup. Do, do you want to try to describe the sounds that she made in describing her her cooking process? Because it was it was deeply charming. I love it. I love her so much. I mean, to our listeners who don't watch the show, which I don't even know if there are any of those, but it's very difficult to describe Jamie's style of speech. She really enjoys using like gestures and sound effects to replace words. So she'll be like, and then I just needed to like, and then I, and then I was like, and then it was done. And all the chefs just seem to find it absolutely charming, as does Padma. One of the questions I have about Jamie is, are they using her least coherent takes just to try to like create this sense of her as being eccentric? Or are these in fact her most coherent takes? And like all of the other ones, she's just like not even using language. She's just doing these bibbity boppity boops. That's a great question. It seems like 
pretty authentically her. I get the sense that that's just what she's about, and I dig it. It's an interesting question, too. Like, what we would actually be like on one of these fucking shows, when you when you add in also how exhausted we would be, how often you're getting, like, pulled away to talk in these stressful situations and asked to, like, talk about things that happened three hours ago in present tense. Like, I think as much as we would like to think that we would not come off like absolute psychos, I think that probably, I think the best case scenario is we would occasionally say funny things and they would edit to that rather than just that we would just look nuts. I think I actually have somewhat of a sense of what I would be like, which is what I'm like on the last day of the Suwannee Writers Conference when I've been working for... 18 hours a day for 12, 13 days straight. And I have no longer have any sort of filter and I don't make a tremendous amount of sense. Gwen Kirby prized on normal days for her filter. (laughs) I was going to say, I was going to say, I was going to say that if you were on a reality show, would you just be chucking ice at the faces of the producers nonstop? Well, I'd love to say no, but given my past behavior at the Writers' Conference, I think we should all be worried. Pivoting back to the soup, as I'm sure our overlords at Campbell's would want us to, I will say the I, I was interested in Avishar's chicken toast masala, which Dale thought mm. was really smart. And I also like in a, the idea of using Campbell's tomato soup as a way to, for lack of a better way to put it, like just whiten up the chicken tikka masala that I try to make for me and my wife, because she also, she's in particular, is not super into the spicy. I think actually could work pretty well. Like, I think that'd be a pretty decent base if you want to make your curries a little sweeter and a little more tomato-y. One note, um, I mean, and then we can talk about any of these other quick fire people that, that you wanted to. I really enjoyed Shoda. He's asked by Padma, and of course, just that way that Padma does. Did you mean for your custard to be loose? And... They show him saying to her, yeah, I like it a little on the loose side. And then immediately cut to him the talking head be like, absolutely not. I, totally <laughs> <it up." laughs> like, I, really, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> I also was really, I mean, Chris's grilled cheese seemed very smart. I don't know that I'm completely visualizing tomato soup in the vinaigrette, but whatever. I will say though, he was a little bit like, I can't believe I won with grilled cheese, which is to say he's never seen the show. Like grilled yeah. cheese often wins. In fact, Dale, I don't know if he was thinking about this on season eight, won that challenge where they had to spend the night in the target with making tomato soup with grilled cheese that then he grilled with the irons, which was pretty smart. And season two, again, not to be too much of a historian, but Betty won with her red pepper tomato soup that she also paired with a grilled cheese. So there is there is history here. I mean, if anything I've noticed doing a podcast for Top Chef and not just watching it is that the longer it takes me to type out the name of your dish, the (laughs) worse it's possibly going to go for you. Like if you can sum up your dish quickly, oh, it's grilled cheese with a tomato soup vinaigrette. Boom. Uh, Whereas, you know, by the time I'm on line two talking about, you know, pickled shallots and grape puree, at, at that point, often the dish has gone awry. Yeah, though I will say Byron's dish, which he summed up as every day is Thanksgiving. I have no idea what this dish is. No, I don't really either. <laughs> I mean, it's poached chicken. Okay. Cream of mushroom bread pudding. Sure. I know what I know what mirepoix is. No, I can picture it. No, I take that back. I can picture Byron's dish. It's chicken, bread pudding, and a mirepoix, which is just onion, celery, and carrot, which is like a really typical um, base that you cook down for sauces. Cool. I'm just saying that he was trying to sum it up really quickly and I was looking at it and I was like, no idea what you're talking about, but 
you're probably going to be in the middle. Yeah, well, fair. anyway, speaking of no idea what you're talking about, before we pivot to the elimination challenge, would you like to give us our Gwen's cooking minute or whatever you're calling it? Daniel, you're really underselling the segment. It's called <laughs> Gwen's Gwen's food minute, not Gwen's cooking minute, Gwen's food minute. My God. How am I supposed to get pumped for the segment with that level of enthusiasm from my co-host? Just channel the shirt you're wearing in the amazing half marathon that you ran in it. <laughs> Bite me. All right. So are you ready to time? Born ready. All right. Boom. All right. So for Gwen's food minute today, we're going to be talking about making homemade tortillas. So I don't know about you all, but I really love tortillas. And when you buy tortillas in the store, unless you're in the holy land of Southern California where there are wonderful tortillas in the store, the tortillas in the store kind of suck, right? You like heat them up and then they just like they break apart. They're shit. So I decided for our loyal listeners today that I would make tortillas from scratch, which is apparently the easiest motherfucking thing in the entire world. So you take your masa, which is just ground up corn. You can buy it in the grocery store. Scoop, scoop into the bowl, put in some salt, put in some hot water, mixy, mixy, mix. You're going to get a nice little mixture. It needs to sit for an hour. Hot tip, don't have to hide in your bathroom for 45 minutes during a tornado warning because then your thing is going to dry out somewhat and your food minute will be thwarted. That's fine. Make it into little bowls, put it in the tortilla press, cut a Ziploc bag in half to use as your like saran wrap layer, press, press, press. I feel like I'm running out of time, but I got very excited early on feeling like I had to smoosh these tortillas as flat as I possibly could. That was a rookie mistake. Give them a little smoosh, but not a full smoosh. You wanna have a little bit of thickness when you're cooking your tortilla. Throw it in your pan, let it cook for 10 seconds on one side, flippy flip, minute, minute, you're done. Finally, you don't need a tortilla press, even though I have one and highly recommend it. You can press it with anything heavy, a pan, etc. They're super tasty, way better than what you'd get at the store. Woo! So I have a couple of questions. First, when you tell our listeners that they should only do a minute on each side, did you mean a minute or did you mean the minute and 45 as calibrated by the Gwen's food minute that you just did? Damn it. Second, I'm just curious because you did you did mention, you know, give it a good smoosh, <laughs> but you didn't give any like ratios, measurements or anything like that. So if I'm looking to try to, I don't know, like convert smoosh into something a little more concrete, is there anywhere that I could look for that? Is that, is that a standard, is that a standard uh, measurement somewhere? That is a standard measurement. I'm shocked you haven't heard it. Um, but no, I would say if you get your little, if you get your little masa ball to about a two inch diameter and then you smoosh it, it should be about maybe the thickness of something you'd be familiar with, Dan, a, a British pound coin. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. Well, thank you very much. And we look forward in the listener comments to hear those of you who attempt that, to hear how we feel that it, it all turned out. Moving on to the elimination challenge. So they were asked to make a savory dish featuring fruit that they would take the fruit from the evidently famous Oregon Fruit Loop, which is a trail where there are farms. And I was thinking my mother would love this in that it sort of conflates fruits and vegetables in my mother's mind growing up. Anything that was freshly picked was just as equally healthy. So... (laughs) 
you know, like sugar, fiber, don't sweat it. It's all good. As long as it's something fresh, it's of equivalent nutritional value. My question for you to start with is, you know, they're given this twist that they can't use any veggies. And I'm curious, like, was this the kind of twist that you like as a viewer? Yeah, I did like it. I think it was Avishar who said something that I'm sure will be obvious to the people listening who are cooks, unlike Dan and I. But he says that, you know, vegetables are sort of the flavor base of a dish. And taking those away, it forces them to use fruit as the base of the dish. So for me, this felt like the kind of twist that reinforced the concept of the challenge. I think like it really forced them to highlight the fruit in a way that without it, perhaps it would have been less integral to the dish. So I I did like it. It didn't feel like a challenge that was just there to fuck with them. Although of course, I mean, it is there to fuck with them, obviously. I agree. Um, I I think it's a good twist in that when we look at the good dishes, the good dishes did not merely survive the twist. They succeeded because of the twist. Agreed. Whereas the secondary twist is that they're cooking outside. And primarily, it seems like many of the dishes that failed, failed, especially Kiki, because they could not cook effectively outside. So yeah, I mean, if we see the people who did well in this, in this challenge, again, you know, we see Gabe, who was just a baller. He didn't even use a protein. He grilled plums. Darth Tater, Darth Tater. He's on my team. I'm going to gas you too much (laughs) much up too by just talking about Gabriel, right, who used essentially oysters as a base to highlight how different fruits paired in different ways. And then, you know, Chris, again, really used, you know, he's using a scallop, but he's using fruits in a variety of different ways that no doubt would not have done if it was just used fruits on top of vegetables. Whereas setting aside Kiki who failed because she was outside, we see Nelson, it seems like, you know, his scalp was drowning in herbs, not drowning in fruit. It's not like he overfruited. Whereas Avishar also underfruited the bacon and the cheese in his Ohio-to, which for those of you who didn't watch is a pun on Ohio and risotto, which I will just say does make me think briefly of this place in Cincinnati called Opio. Yes. And in particular, the look on the face of the hostess when I asked her if they first came up with the name Opio and thought the name was so good, they decided to launch a bakery or if they wanted to do a bakery and they came up with that name. And she looked so insulted that the idea that somebody might ever accuse them of like using the pun to launch their business and not vice versa. (laughs) But anyway, he didn't feature the fruit. And so if the twist is forcing them to feature fruit, I like it if it forces the the dishes to succeed, not in spite of the twist, but because of it. Yeah, I very much agree. I mean, the, the dishes where it was like the sauce, the base was the fruit seemed to really succeed. And the ones that didn't were like, oh, well, I made this really heavy risotto, cheesy, et cetera, layer, which it seems like, of course, is going to overwhelm everything. Avishar, I feel like, perhaps should just stay as far away from rice as he possibly can. I I think, you know, fuck up my rice once, shame on you. Fuck up my rice twice. Maybe just, like, don't cook rice on Top Chef anymore. Like, just take a step back. For me, though, so, I mean, this episode more... When, when I think about an image that to me defines this episode, it's not even these people running around with like apple spears or whatever the fuck they were doing, getting the apples out of the trees. It is the image of the sheet of fresh pasta flapping in the wind, <laughs> which is of course just not a thing that happens 
in cooking. Like this is not something when you're at, you know, cooking school, you're at culinary school and you're like, all right, this is the way that you're going to handle making pasta outside in the wind. (laughs) And I will say, you know, he definitely, Byron actually rallied. They really liked his pasta. It didn't end up being on the top, but it was called out by somebody. I think Kwame as like the first time that fresh pasta was made well. And I think Amar said that it felt like a deconstructed cheese plate mm, um, yeah. in a way that he found really pleasing. Though to me, it feels like like it's it's actively constructed. It feels like the the cheese plate would be the deconstruction, but but that's getting fussy. Um, here's my question to you about these kinds of moments. For lack of a better way to put it, like is this a feature or a bug? Like when you see people struggling to cook outside, is this to you an exciting part of Top Chef? Seeing these people have to rally in conditions that have nothing to do with actual cooking or does it detract from the experience because the person gets sent home because basically the fryer is not good enough for them. Not that they are not good enough for the fryer. I think it adds something. I mean, you could argue like, Oh, what we really want is just to like see these chefs cooking in ideal conditions, et cetera, et cetera. But this isn't just a cooking show. It's a reality TV show. So we want to see their personalities. We want to see what happens to them when they're being chased by a bee while they make pasta. To me, what bothers me is the half measures. So I mentioned an episode in a Target where all they have are like basically what looked to me, if I recall, like panini presses, hot plates, and then like literally some of them are cooking with irons. See, that I like because that to me is so kind of like bananas that you have to really make decisions based on the suitability of the technology that you have around you. I don't think it's all that reasonable for Kiki to expect if they give her a fryer that the fryer is going to suck. And so like these moments where they are handed what they are told are functioning cooking equipment, and then that equipment ends up sucking, I find to be unreasonable. It reminds me of two seasons ago when they were cooking on that goddamn boat that lost power in the middle of the night. And it's like, and then Calicchio is like, well, I mean, you should plan ahead that maybe you're going to lose power. It's like, motherfucker, you have one job to make sure that this kitchen is still working. And Calicchio is acting as if like there's an ancient fucking Yiddish proverb about like (laughs) the like electric air fryer going out in the middle of the night. It's like, that's not reasonable to me. And it's not just that it's annoying to see then the cook fail for something that I just don't think they're able to anticipate. It's then the smugness that comes from Calicchio. And again, it's like, they're always like, you know, like if the, if the fryer doesn't work, like make a different decision. It's like at a certain point, you have to be able to assume a baseline that the stuff that you're given is going to work and you have to plan for it. And I don't think that they set Kiki up to succeed because even in that moment where Calicchio is like, you're sure you're going to be able to keep the fry temperature up? It's like, what the fuck else is she going to do at that point? And again, I don't think that it's reasonable for her to have any experience with working with an air fryer outdoors. I mean, like a, like a deep fryer, not an air fryer. Anyway, so I found this disappointing in that, right? Like if you are given nothing, right? If we talked about last week, like Tony Stark did this in a cave with scraps. If you're in a target overnight and you're trying to cook with an iron and you fail, that's on you. But this to me is an annoying situation where it feels like the tech failed her. And then everybody was smug about how she clearly should have anticipated that that it would work like that. I wasn't totally sure that the tech had failed her. It seemed like she was running out of time. Because, I mean, you know, when you use a fryer, you have to, like, 
you have to keep the oil up at a certain level. If you fry too many things in the fryer at one time, it brings the temperature too far down. And it just seemed like she ran out of time with the fryer. Like the first batch of outdoor fried chicken she made, it seems like was fine because she ate it and some Nelson ate it. And then this raw batch seemed like, I don't know. I mean, I, no shade on Kiki. I, obviously she can operate a fryer and you know, that sucks, but I wasn't, I'm not totally, totally sold that it was 100% the deficiencies of the fryer. Spoken like somebody who did not have Kiki on her fantasy team. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, we can we can leave it at that. I'm sure we'll have many future opportunities to kind of assess different kinds of twists and challenges and whether we think that they, they bring out the best in our chefs or whether they're kind of like stupid hurdles thrown in front of them so that they can trip and then Colicchio can smugly... <laughs> act as if every chef in the world knows exactly how to cook in it with a deep fryer outside as the sun is setting. <laughs> I mean, come on, I could do it. Yeah, Did, none. Didn't you just hear my food minute? I'm ready. It was, I was very impressed. Well, let's, let's get to these. So just for those who didn't watch the episode and again, I, I, I encourage you to, it's, it's a pretty good show. Um, we had Gabe, Chris and Gabriel on the top for their grilled plums, um, peach butter scallops and, varieties of oysters respectively and then Abishar on the bottom for his his filled risotto nelson whose scallop with apple relish gregory was forced to say my poor little scallop is drowning in herbs and kiki who served who served raw chicken i do have to say so this is my this is my question that i had for you also so Abishar is asked do you think you used enough fruit and here's my question for you have you ever been asked a question so loaded? Like, have you ever had somebody like ask you a question so passive aggressively as like Padma does just every fucking episode? God, I feel like I must have in a workshop at some point in my life, but I, you know, none, none springs to mind. But in a workshop, you're in the cone of silence. So you're never actually spoken to directly like that. That's a good point. Fine. So it's always been passive aggressively suggested about my work, not directly asked to me. Um, no, it's terrible. I mean, you know, when when they're staring at him and they're like, did you mean to completely fail to meet the minimum requirements of this challenge? Like, obviously, no, Abishar's intention was not to fail to do the minimum. It reminded me of the first time I was ever driving with my father in the car, which is pretty late in life because I did not learn to drive until I was in my early 20s. And this was the first time that I was confident enough in my driving to be driving to New York City, which is where my dad lives. And we park in front of where he lives. And he says to me, are you really satisfied with that parking job? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, as they say, reader, I was not. I mean, um, in fairness, I've seen you try to park. Anyway, in fairness to who? To my father, you're saying? Yeah. Like his fucking side. That's fair. But anyway, yeah, anyway, it's always nice, like, when Padma can trigger the most kind of, like, passive-aggressive moments you've had to endure in your life. I guess the equivalent in writing workshop is just, is almost the opposite, where they're just, like, somebody makes an assumption that's so counter to what you're trying to do, that's just, like, this seems like it is trying to use no fruit in a fruit challenge. <laughs> Which I think is a bold move, and I think we should applaud it. <laughs> Boy, I will say, when it came to the bottom group, I thought Abishar's looked so awful. I mean, it's 
it's there's no colors to it, right? It's just kind of this pale blob in the bottom of his plate. And I think weirdly, it seemed like his was the best of the three. Like by the time they were done debating, I actually wasn't worried that Abishar was going to go home. They hated Nelson's. I apparently the herbs were just so repugnant that I actually thought he should have gone home over Kiki. Like if they were like, this would be a middle dish if she'd managed to fry the chicken properly. It's an interesting question. I mean, for Nelson's, I mean, Padma said that it was like medicinal in taste. Such was the quality of the rosemary. Mm. You know, it, it goes to a question that sometimes also shows up on, on Project Runway, which is like, do you want to punish a failure of imagination or a failure of execution? And my impulse as a viewer is always to celebrate imagination at the expense of execution, especially early on in a show. Same. But I guess this isn't, you know, there'll be the thing where it's like someone will be like, this is, this is Project Runway, not Project Sewing, right? And you'll be like, somebody will have something interesting, but it's not horribly well executed because they had fucking 12 hours to sew something, which yeah. is just not that, that realistic, especially early on in a show. That being said, you know, worst case scenario in Project Runway, you fail to adequately conceal the poom poom. Like, <laughs> you can't have raw chicken. No, so, you can't. And I will say at the very least, they're sort of consistent on this over the years. They punish a failure of basic execution more than anything else. And so I think it's consistent within the Top Chef universe that if she's serving raw chicken, she's going home. But I agree with you. But I also don't know enough about cooking to know to what extent Nelson's dish failed for execution versus conception. I mean, right, that's an execution issue also, right, to drown the poor little scallop in rosemary. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe for the, well, you'll remember this better than me because you remember things better than me. But for the first time, for me, it seemed like all three bottom dishes were like bad. Yeah, for this season, for this yeah, season, for this yeah. Season. And I also don't think it's surprising. I, this is where, again, we talk about like hidden twists versus advertised twists. Like the advertised twist is that you have to use fruit and not veggies. The real twist is that you have to cook outside in the wind and you're just not used to it, especially like they're not from Portland. Even if they cook outside, they're not used to like the way the temperature drops in the Pacific Northwest, right? Like differently than where they are from and the way that that affects the precision of cooking. So uh, anytime you take them outside of the lab, I think you just increase the variance and you increase the likelihood of them fucking up basic competency issues. Which we saw throughout. I mean, Shoda's yeah. fish was a little dry. Sarah had too much dill. All these people who we really haven't seen like make errors, particularly. Yeah. And if you look at, I mean, it is it is fitting. I mean, if you look at the people who won or who did very well, right? Like Gabriel, obviously, whose, whose oysters were enchanting. Setting aside all the flavor stuff, because I think that the flavor stuff is probably pretty similar outside as inside. I mean, all he has to do is keep the shit cold. Yeah. Right? Searing a scallop is such a quick process that there is less time, I think, for the change in conditions to affect you. And Gabe is like outdoor smoking fruit, which is a really smart idea, and it worked really well. And, um, I mean, Gail, Gail Simmons... The poet laureate of Top Chef. It was a bridge between summer and fall. Yes, how magical. But Kiki. Oh, Kiki. Kiki, you know what? Kiki seems like she'll be happy to go home. Like, not like happy to lose, but I think just happy to physically be home and not be in this environment. I mean, again, we talked about this in the first episode. 
being a good top chef is not the same thing as being a good chef. And the way that she talks about the amount of time that she puts into imagining and conceiving of a dish, this is not her environment. I mean, every single one of her talking heads this episode was like, I hate the premise of this show. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, well, yeah, that's totally fair. Uh, I could see why maybe like this isn't for you. Can I ask what you want to eat the most? It all looked really delicious. I actually, I was very interested in Chris's dish because I am super curious how like the peach butter and the, maybe I just haven't had a scallop in a really long time. That sounded delicious. Um, And I also was drawn to, where is my note? Oh, no surprise. I was drawn to Maria's albondigas secas because those looked delicious and I love albondigas. How about you? What are those, by the way? I assume that you would look. Them they're um, they're meat, so they're meatballs. Okay. Our one yes is meatballs, and secas means dry. So I'm not sure why, because they were floating in sauce. But just, but yeah, <laughs> I love it. Maria. Not only is Maria Maria 100 of the time, Maria seems just constitutionally incapable of not being Maria. So she brings out the dishes, and she's just like, "You took my chilies." <laughs> It's so great. And she's like, that's all right, though, because I poured in a shit ton of hot pepper flakes and I'm rolling with it. So I, I mean, everything she makes looks delicious. I love El Juan de uh, I hate to I hate to compliment Gabriel, but I will say the oysters look the most exciting to me. Maybe maybe just because I'm just missing cold, briny things like I'm missing summer and I'm missing raw, raw fish in that way. So that looked absolutely delightful. But yeah, so, so many things here to dream of eating this didn't seem like the easiest episode to try to emulate no i'm just i'm not not really much of a like cooked fruit person i thought you were gonna say you're just not that much of a cook i'm like yeah same (laughs) excuse you (laughs) again i feel like you're not properly listening to my food minute i have a lot of cooking techniques that i am learning no i'm just not i don't know i'm not that big on cooked fruit i don't really i don't really like pears and <laughs> Andrew gives me a bunch of shit about this because one year we got these like, do you know those fancy pears? Like those pears that I do know the fancy wrapped pears. in gold. And he was yeah. like, "Oh, it's this fancy pear." And I was like, "Well, I don't get it. Like, what's fancy about it?" And he was like, "No, it's like a, it's like a really good pear." And I was like, "But is there like, like, is it actually made of like chocolate? I don't, I don't understand. Like, what, what, what's going on with this pear?" And he was like, "No, it's just a really good pear." And I was like, "Oh." Well, that sucks. You can have them. I, don't, I just don't, I don't get it. Gwen Kirby hating on pears with the energy of Leslie Nope calling turtles conceited. <laughs> They're conceited. Well, getting to getting to Last Chance Kitchen, which I don't know if you felt this way. It seemed immediately obvious to me the moment that they didn't have chicken out there and Calicchio was oh, giving her shit. Oh, it was so obvious. That it was going to be raw. And I almost kind of assumed that they both, they both knew it enough that, they, I mean, they picked... They picked scallops and yellowfin. Yeah. And they made a ceviche and a crudo, respectively, which I will say are the two things, actually, if anything from any challenge I most wanted to eat because I love ceviche and crudo. Delicious. So much. Colicchio just such a dick. Like, he's just, like, smiling, grinning. He's like, why do you always undercook food for us? It's like, why don't you fucking cook something, <laughs> motherfucker? <laughs> why don't you see what it's like there? Though I will say, there was that moment, obviously, in season eight where Colicchio did do a quick fire. And he seemed to do very well. But I'm sure he had like years to plan it exactly what he was going to do. Yeah, they weren't going to show Clickio like massively fucking it up. No, he was being a smug asshole about it. It was an obvious twist. I was surprised neither of them picked tuna 
but maybe that's like too obvious. Yellowfin is tuna, I think. Is it? I'm going to Google it. This is going to be an exciting moment for our listeners. Um, I think so because yellowfin, I do. Yeah, yellowfin tuna. Huh. Um, it's just like a different kind of tuna versus like albacore or other kinds of tuna. Well, I'm learning so much today. Yeah. Anyway, I'm surprised that there isn't like immense sushi great fish in mm. Sewanee, Tennessee for you to use. There is not. Wait, was it? Oh, yeah. No. Okay. I'm learning. Very good. I I love sushi so much. I would cut a bitch to have some sushi right now. It's, it's your favorite? It's my favorite. Do you have anything you want to say for Sasha? I mean, Colicchio said that it was tasty, but there was way too much sauce, which to me is one of those good kind of problems, but... Yeah, I don't know that I've ever eaten anything and been like, wow, if only there was less delicious sauce on it. But I was, I honestly was surprised. I thought maybe Kiki was going to lose because it seemed like that was a very intense way to present habanero peppers. But I don't know, Colicchio didn't fuck around. So he was up for it and they both just looked fine. I had no metric for being able to judge which one was better. Yeah, they both look amazing. I would order all of them. Yeah, same. Well, anyway, Kiki at least is there to taunt me with the idea that she can generate more value for my fantasy team <laughs> after being one of the early eliminations. But I I think she'll just be happier not being on this show. It seems like yeah. it doesn't seem like the right environment for her process. Yeah, I concur. Uh, farewell, Kiki. I hope you get home soon. Get back to R&D. And uh, doing, yeah. doing what you love, which is not quick fires or cooking outdoors. Well, we're going to get back to what we love, which is doing fuck all on a Sunday. <laughs> Woo! We want to thank you all, as always, for listening. And just let, let those of you who listen to all of our offerings know, we are going to wait to do our final Temptation Island podcast until the show is quite complete, as the sort of part one of the finale did not really offer much to discuss. As always, we hope to hear from you at at restingbatchface at gmail or at batch underscore face on Twitter. And you know, we look forward to to hearing if you have any also just suggestions for Gwen Food Minutes. Yes, please. Oh my God. If there's anything you would like to see me attempt to make, um I would be totally up for that. So send send it in. Yeah, I'm going to make so many burner accounts and suggest that you make shit that you would utterly fail at. <laughs> Fuck you. That you amazing. All right. Well, anyway, this was a fun episode and just a small teaser. I saw the the, the clips of next week on Top Chef, people hating on Gabriel. There was a talking wow. head of Jamie being like, Gabriel's kind of a dick. And I it's hard for me to properly calibrate my excitement level. <sighs> Uh, I mean, we're, we're looking forward to it. Until then, you know, stay safe, stay well, get vaccinated. Indeed, all of those things. All right, see you all next time. Bye.